Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peace building calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch. This is a War Child podcast. This episode, help them forget this bad life in the bush. How the participation of young people formerly associated with armed forces and armed groups is a cornerstone for long-lasting peace. Hello and welcome to this Warchild podcast, developed in collaboration with young people in Democratic Republic of Congo, the International Labour Organization, the UN University's Managing Exits from Armed Conflict Project, and the US Department of Labour's International Labour Affairs Bureau. I'm Sandra Olson, and I'm the Reintegration Advisor at Warchild. Today we're going to discuss two separate but linked aspects. The first one is the participation of young people in peacebuilding. And the second one is the state of reintegration programming and the lack of young people's participation within it. Shortly, we'll be hearing from the members of one of Warchild's voice more groups in Masisi, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Voicemore is a youth-led advocacy program, and young people in the group are working on their own project into the push and pull factors into armed groups. They will offer their thoughts on young people's participation in both peacebuilding and reintegration. Then a panel of representatives from Warchild, the International Labour Organization, the UN University's Managing Exits from Armed Conflict Project, and the US Department of Labor's International Labor Affairs Bureau will react to the key points shared by the young people. The panel today consists of Shivan O'Neill, Project Director of the Managing Exits from Armed Conflict Project at the Center for Policy Research at UN University. Hi, thanks for having me. Simon Hills, Technical Specialist with the International Labor Organization's Fundamental Branch. Hi, everybody. Jennifer Fendrick. Senior International Relations Officer in the Office of Child Labour, Forced Labour and Human Trafficking at the US Department of Labour's Bureau of International Labour Affairs. Hi Sandra, it's great to be here. And last but not least, Sophie Bray Watkins, Youth Advocacy and Engagement Advisor at Warchild UK and creator of the Voice More methodology. Thanks Sandra, great to be here. So we'll hear more from our panel in a little while, but first, let's hear from members of one of Warchild's voice more groups in Masisi, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, an area which has been deeply affected by armed conflict for decades. My name is PD. I'm 23 years old. In all localities or villages, young people do not participate in community peace-building projects because adults, and especially the chiefs of localities and villages, do not give them the space to participate. As long as a young person is not yet married, they have no place in the community and other members of the community do not invite them to participate in an activity with them. Indeed, they do not see them as members of the community who have a role to play. 
On the contrary, they suspect them of being in collusion with the armed groups because at any time they can leave to the bush. My name is Kiriku. I'm 18 years old. Yes, young people are strong and courageous, but they are not considered. Adults distance themselves from them out of fear that they will replace them in their role in the community because they are strong dynamic with new ideas. For girls, in addition to lack of consideration, they are victims of gender discrimination. So, having heard from the young people speaking about how they're perceived and treated by adults, and one of them raising being married as the only way of being heard in the community, I'd like to ask the panel if you think that the social cultural rites of passage are considered enough by the humanitarian sector when seeking to overcome barriers to youth participation. Siobhan? Unfortunately not. And I think it goes beyond, you know, thinking about youth participation. And it it is an issue across all types of programs. And I keep thinking about the work trying to prevent child and youth recruitment into armed groups. And there's so many examples in the research that we've done of armed groups that are actively offering young people the opportunity uh, to participate in these rites of passage when they are impossible for them um, to do in other circumstances. And marriage is a key one. And so to hear the experiences of young people who feel that they have no place and there is no room for them because they have not gone through these rites of passage, and yet that's what armed groups are offering, um, you really feel that we have failed to uh, create the space, not only to, to, to offer an alternative to armed group involvement, but, but to also help young people um, really steer the direction of, of peace building. And we know that this is essential because if people, all people in a community don't feel ownership over solutions, um, they're not going to be fully engaged and enthusiastic about them. So they're unlikely to be as effective. So this is a two-way street that we need to really address. And it's not just about changing people's perceptions about engaging with young people and making space for them, but it's also helping create that culture of participation, um, which sometimes is just a skill set about how to engage in these conversations, how to think about policy solutions, how to put them into place in the, on the ground. And that's one of the reasons I've been so enthusiastic about working uh, with the Voice More groups is because that really comes out in those conversations and in the work that you're doing. Um, in general, my response to the question um, is that these rites of passage are not considered enough when we think about participation. And the young person's comment on marriage was really exemplifying that. Traditionally, I would say the focus is on other barriers, such as age itself or gender, um, both of which are still important, gender especially. Um, but there are many other factors that are going to hinder participation, which really aren't appreciated enough. So in Western societies, I think we have a fixation on age, whereas in other cultural contexts, these life stages are not going to be necessarily determined by that. And programs consequently are designed with this Western perspective and they're failing to really analyze what these barriers to participation and within peace building are going to be. Um, so, and this links to the suggestion that Siobhan made is that we it's really essential that you work with young people um, and those families and those communities to identify what the barriers are 
and not to just presume knowledge for each each context and each place. Um, the best way to achieve this is going to be participatory approaches. That's the way that you're going to find out what what these specific barriers might be and the best way to navigate them. No, I I agree as well. I think the other thing is as well that these these social cultural rights and these um, socio cultural practices may be barriers for other groups as well within the societies and and I think those need thinking about as well. We're seeing now, for example, just seen with the uh, um, Economist has had a piece talking about how um, if women are not included within peace negotiations and peace discussions, the likelihood of um, a truce or a long-lasting peace settlement is much reduced and the need for inclusion of groups who may not be involved in the conflict but to have a voice is needed because often you, you're just dealing with those who have the power and control the power dynamics and those who are excluded from that but are very key and essential in being able to maintain this peace and feel included within the society are shut out and not, not included or not thought about until it's too late. So relating back to the second quote that we heard from, from the young girl, she was talking about the fear of youth and seeing youth, the youth population as a threat is something acknowledged and documented in the international youth participation sphere. To what extent do you think that current peace building and reintegration programming address this sentiment, both within communities at a state level? Do you want to start then, Jennifer? Yeah, um, I, I think that it's absolutely imperative that youth play an active role in planning and implementing community-based reintegration programs. And young people should be viewed uh, as an ally in this fight, not uh, as an obstacle to be overcome. Programs have to proactively incentivize adults to empower youth, including with peer mentorship and apprenticeship programs, several of which um, are currently active um, under the aegis of the uh, International Labor Affairs Bureau. Sophie, because you have sort of spearheaded the Voice More methodology, with, which is this youth advocacy program, how, um, how would you say that that fear aspect has been um, considered through that work or with those young people? Yeah, I think in relation to voice more specifically is the fear factor. What the girl spoke to there was um, this this concern that young people are going to step in and supplant almost the role of adults or somehow take over. And I think that's a really common theme um, and and is something spoken about quite a lot when you look at youth participation. I would say, you know, that idea that young people are this group in society that need to be controlled and contained is, is you know, historically always kind of been the case. But then the things that can kind of help alleviate that a bit are when young people are working in collaboration and doing things for a community. So there's that real clarity that there that there isn't, a desire to somehow remove adults, but actually just to to be able to complement other things that are happening in the community and work with other members of the community for the greater good. And that's what the Voice More methodology seeks to do. I believe it creates a space for them to have more possibility to input into decision-making um, in the longer term. So it's about exemplifying what can happen when young people are given an opportunity to, to do something positive. 
But then I think that goes to something beyond as well, which is the opportunities within these communities and where opportunities are limited, then often what is available is, is seen through a very sort of zero-sum lens. So you have winners and losers. You don't have the opportunity of, of seeing everyone win and seeing that by contributing and working together, everybody has an opportunity rather than one group losing out. So this is something that definitely needs working on. Thank you, Simon. That actually makes me think about how the threat is often quite different between boys and girls, where boys are often prioritized through programming because they're considered more violent, um, whereas girls who are, who are still very stigmatized, but they're not considered an immediate threat to the same extent, which often means that in programming, it can be a bit skewed and boys are prioritized over girls for the sake of peace. Shivan, is that something that you've seen through your research? I definitely think some of the gender stereotypes that you have, just like some of the age stereotypes that we have, um, really do inform how programs are adapted and who is considered eligible or prioritized. So I think that's absolutely the case. It's a very good piece recently in Just Security by the special rapporteur, uh, Fanula Nialuan, uh, on sort of the gendered uh, lens that is applied to boys in Al-Hol and some of the other Syrian camps and the assumption behind it that because they're boys, um, that they must be involved or they, they pose a threat. And so this very different approach to them. And I think this other sort of set of um, kind of stereotypes that Sophie brought up is it's really universal, right? We always have these sort of views of youth across societies as troublemakers or you know, challenging kind of the mores of the day and, and, and clipping at the heels of people who are already in jobs. So there's an element of that that's, you know, sort of semi-universal. But I do think it's really important to have this particular focus in this podcast and in our work uh, because the sort of generational conflict is so much more acute in conflict societies often, and it's really underappreciated. And so I really love that we're delving into this here a bit um, because it's it's something that's driving conflict. You know, I there are people who consider that, you know, the Islamic State in, in many ways was a youth revolt, and but it's not always read that way. Um, or the problem that we tend to have, I think, is a lot of the narrative around violent extremism focused on youth initially. And so it really helped contribute to this idea that there was this innate threat posed by this age band. Um, and there have been efforts, I think, of late to, to walk that back. And I you know, the Youth Peace and Security um, Progress Report was a wonderful example that youth really are, as you said, Jennifer, are our allies. They are peace builders. And we've, we've really viewed them through this narrow, securitized, and as you say, very gendered lens at times, which distorts reality, number one, doesn't address the sort of fundamental rifts in society that are leading to some of these conflicts and certainly doesn't get us uh, on good footing for making progress towards peace building. Yeah, some really interesting and important points raised there. I mean, there's one other, one other way that I listened to those comments from the young people and thought about fear. If you think about the fear factor of, of being stigmatized, so young people leaving armed groups, having that fear of people feeling a fear of associating with them 
a fear of them having a damaged reputation, somehow having a spoiled identity. And I think what really has started to come through in the comments from the young people was how the success of the work that we want to do will rest on that community acceptance and overcoming some of that stigmatization. Um, for example, in Warchild, we are trying to introduce more dialogue between children, youth and adults in the community um, to try and overcome it. Thank you very much for that, Sophie. Um, and we'll be able to go even further into the sort of community acceptance and reintegration a bit further on. But first, uh, we're going to have a look uh, a bit at the push and pull factors of recruitment. So let's listen to the young people again. My name is Sombe, 21 years old. Here in Masisi, there is a big problem of schooling. Many children remain outside the school system. Their parents, who are generally dependent on agriculture, do not have access to land. They remain wondering and pray to recruitment into armed groups. My name is Leo Perth and I'm 21 years old. Here in Masisi, the land is in the hands of the big landowners who turn them into pastures. As a result, the vast majority of the population does not have access to arable lands to feed their families and meet the priority needs of children. Since they cannot go to school, they are easily recruited into armed groups. My name is Lenga. I'm 20 years old. Here in Masisi, many families are unjustly driven from their fields, often bought by large landowners, which makes them poor, and the children of these families, not knowing how to live, will be recruited into armed groups. So listening to to these voices from these uh, three young people, you can tell that the factors leading to recruitment are, are complex and interlinked. So I'd like to ask the panel to what extent you think that current reintegration programming is connected to wider developmental and humanitarian activity and what concrete changes do you think could help improve this? Jennifer, would you like to reflect on that? Yeah, um, thank you, Sandra. So push factors like displacement and chronic food insecurity certainly aggravate uh, the risk of recruitment. So in the Central African Republic, for instance, we saw post-electoral violence ballooning the country's IDP population to almost 700,000. Half of these were children. All of these were at risk of recruitment and other forms of labor exploitation. But I think it's really uh, equally important to discuss pull factors like the fact that child sex and labor exploitation, including the recruitment and use of children, can be a function of the survival economy, where child labor uh, and children in armed conflict are viewed as a poverty mitigation strategy. And, and I, to that end, I really want to speak to the question around land ownership. Um, so competition for land can really become a zero-sum game where you have local tensions around land access that quickly um, transform into violent conflict. And this is particularly the case in parts of sub-Saharan Africa where you have climate change and migratory and population pressures all converging. And we saw this, for instance, exemplified in the Kamwina Nasapu rebellion in Kasai in 2016, where you had friction arising from unclear and conflicting tenure systems that set in motion a very violent conflict that brought hundreds of child soldiers to the fore. Sure. Uh, I think as well, I mean, as mentioned by, by Jennifer, there are so many factors feeding in, like land opportunities, climate change, which is obviously putting more pressure 
on many communities and, and making things more desperate. And, and the issue of poverty, opportunities and education, I think, are key to addressing the issues of conflict and especially the inclusion of uh, children within conflicts and their recruitment and, and making sure they have opportunities through education, but but beyond education as well, and that they can see that there are opportunities. As we're seeing from these these discussions, they're saying, well, the land's taken away. Well, um, the agricultural skills that are, we're dependent on are, aren't there anymore because we don't have the land or whatever. So, so where are the opportunities going from education forward as well? And I think this is sometimes lost as well between the humanitarian and the development. Sometimes coming in at the humanitarian level, it's it's almost too late because we're looking at systemic issues which have built up and leading to these conflicts rather than looking at ways of alleviating these tensions and, and sort of flashpoints before they've got to the stage where conflict and, and people really are, are having to fight each other for, for limited resources. Does somebody else want to jump in? Sure, I'm happy to jump in. I thought the observations and experiences of the young people uh, just shared are super interesting because, again, they do highlight that um, recruitment is often, you know, multi-causal and those causes are often interlinked. And I think some of them come through and, and Jennifer and Simon just kind of delved into a couple of the key ones. I think it is worth noting because it's, it's an assumption that sits there, but we don't often acknowledge it that one of the most important things is that there is the presence of armed groups and that children are interacting with them. And the stories that were just told often speak of economic hardship. They often speak of the lack of opportunity because people aren't in school, but they also speak to the fact that children are, they're not in a safe space. They are, they're potentially idle. They're in the streets. Um, so they are likely interacting in a way that they might not if they were in school or if they were working in fields or doing something else. So I think that's worth noting in addition to this observation that the factors behind recruitment are complex and interlinked. I think it's important to kind of step back from the question because I think it it speaks to one of the challenges to doing this work well whether it's the risk of forced migration um, or engaging in risky behaviors, drug use, armed group recruitment, many of those vulnerabilities that open children and young people up to these adverse outcomes are similar or the same. And yet we've organized ourselves in these silos to dealing with these aspects of the problem or for one particular outcome that we care about um, or have funded. So I think that's one potential challenge in the way we have organized ourselves. I think another one that's interesting is in, in working in this space for quite a while, we see increasingly acknowledgement that recruitment in, uh, into armed groups is, you know, a multifaceted problem, right? It, there's, a, there's a number of factors. They interact differently for individuals. You have siblings in the same environment and one kid goes in and one kid doesn't. But our, our conversation, the way we talk about this is still it's still not where it needs to be. We still think of this in a very historical and static way. So the discussion is, how do we address those factors that led to your recruitment? Instead of saying, how do we look at those factors that led to your recruitment and your time in the armed group and how you came to exit it and what your life is like today, the daily stressors that you face and your risks for re-recruitment? Two two quick points on that, if I may. I think it was interesting you giving the example of the one brother who did enter and the other who didn't. 
and talking about how to support or what what led the factor to the child being recruited rather than saying okay you didn't get recruited why not what things can we promote which helped you not be sucked into this which we could promote for others in terms of prevention as well but i think even more key was what you were saying on this problem set and looking at this and then it's also which actors are looking at this problem set and i think this is a problem we fall into a lot as you said we're siloed and if we're dealing with reintegration if we're dealing with children in armed conflict often we're dealing much more with the humanitarian side or even the militaristic side rather than a more developmental or, or holistic program you've you've got someone who's dealing with peace and security as opposed to say an agronomist who can say well how do we get more people to make this land more productive and also need more people to work it which would then reduce unemployment create greater livelihoods etc cetera, etc cetera. so so what you said about starting with the problem set and how we view it in a more holistic way, I think is uh, very key. And I think something that we're all guilty of not doing. The, yeah, I totally agree. I think it, it links to um, what's just been said. I mean, if you, there's never been a lack of um, joining the dots when you speak to young people, like the young people are here in, these, in, these, um, in this feedback, in these comments, is the interconnectedness between all of these issues. Um, I would agree with all of the points that have just been raised, but also it would be really useful to think about the the mismatch between those realities um, versus the structures around it that are trying to yeah. um, address it. So, for example, you know, there isn't really this, this you can't dif differentiate much between humanitarian and, and development worlds mm. on, on the ground. The, the, where they stop and where they start is really blurred. It's not clear cut. It's not clear cut in the same way that it's tried to be presented on paper or in documents. And that funding um, for this work is so rigid and it's not also not speaking to those realities that we've just talked about. Yeah. So there is a need to um, change funding mechanisms. Um, consider fu combining funding for development, peace building, humanitarian projects, allowing them to interact uh, in more dynamic ways. And short-term funding is, is an ongoing issue for reintegration projects. You know, Without having the ability to apply for longer-term funding, it's impossible to have that longer-term or strategic view or to link it to any other developmental work in a, in a meaningful way. So it's definitely something that War Child is um, trying to trying to change thinking around. If I could just build on one thing that Simon said that I really appreciated is that we're we're always focused on what causes you know recruitment or the behavior we don't want to see, and we don't often focus on those people who were exposed to the same conditions and then didn't get recruited or didn't um, get involved. And and there's a lot of value to doing that because. For, you know, sort of research methodology, research methodological reasons. But I think there's also a, a challenge here because there's a lot of discussions about resilience. And I think some of our assumptions about resilience are really problematic where, you know, we talk about resilience to recruitment by an armed group. And if we're honest with ourselves, in many cases, young people who do get recruited they are enormously resilient and actually becoming involved with an armed group to the extent that they had any agency in that, in that um, association is sometimes a sign of resilience. And so I agree very much when we are sort of assessing uh, 
problems, trying to think about sort of the absence of them and in, in, in getting us to better understand the dynamics behind what's going on and, and crafting better interventions. But in this particular space, I often find the discussion is really, the, the assumption behind the discussion is really narrow. So being with an armed group is bad. And so therefore, um, you're not resilient if you are. And I think that part of it is is problematic and, and probably not really true uh, in many conflict situations. Thank you, everyone. I think from what we've heard, I mean, there's a lot of words in common, like we're siloed, we make narrow assumptions, we we don't properly understand resilience, how the community view certain kinds of association with an armed actor, and most importantly, how do the young people themselves view this? So I think that sums up very well why we invited you here today to properly discuss how do we make sure that young people do participate in these really important discussions. And it does uh, lead us into the next uh, stage. We'll listen to a couple of young people again, and then we can pick up on particularly discussing the, the more sort of details of, of reintegration that you've already, you've already sort of started. My name is Android, 20 years old. I've found that young people who want to leave armed groups start their lives outside of these groups are not well received, either by their families or by their communities. We tend to distance ourselves from them, to make fun of them, especially the other young people in the villages. They are subject to prosecution by the heads of localities or villages and the security services. They are suspected of being in possession of weapons and being at the root of the insecurity in the community and returns to the armed groups because of poor reception. I recommend that they first be welcomed by their families and communities before receiving any other assistance to support their reintegration. My name is Kuwaya, 20 years old. In my opinion, for young people who intend to leave armed forces and groups to feel well integrated and start their lives again with their families and in their respective communities, it is necessary to involve them in the different activities of their families or communities, give them a role to play and involve them in family and community decisions. My name is Ngozi Yatumbu. I'm 24 years old. Once there is a good welcome in a family and in the community, the learning of traits that young people are useful for their societies. I propose they would benefit from projects to help them de-traumatize after ill treatment and forget the bad situations lived in the bush and during the atrocities of which they were authors or that they learned to help them forget this bad life in the bush. So listening to these young people who are very much talking about social exclusion and, and what is needed, um, would you think that the level of social exclusion faced by young people leaving armed groups is sufficiently addressed in, in current reintegration efforts? And perhaps linking back to what, what some of them said, um, in the hierarchy of needs young people possess upon leaving an armed group, where would you place the need for social acceptance or addressing this exclusion or the stigma? What would you say, Sophie? Thanks, Sandra. Um, I thought it was super interesting that they raised the, the social aspect here they gave as an immediate priority, um, which poses a question about the order assistance is, is offered and, and received in. Um, to what extent, then, is there too much focused on the material ahead of the social in reintegration programming? 
And should there be more efforts to lay the ground for community acceptance first before we attempt other activities? So in current reintegration programming, these harder um, aspects such as economic support can be prioritised over the softer ones. Um, but really the success of, of all of them, is, is hinge, they hinge on each other. So, for example, a girl might be given a um, given training and materials to become a seamstress, but if everyone is still regarding her as a prostitute, no one's going to want to buy her goods. So that livelihoods endeavour is then rendered um, useless or less successful because of the lack of thinking around the social aspects to, to uh, how she's appreciated in community. And in some ways, when I heard that, it kind of, for me, up- upended Maslow a bit which is here the young people are indicating that belonging and psychological need are the foundations. And it also touches upon stigma, this role of stigma that we've already talked about, which I feel is really important um, and how the success of any reintegration package could be determined by that exclusion. Um, So I think that the social and community focused efforts need much more thinking about at earlier stage as well. Arguably, the earliest stage of design and implementation. I think it also has to balance the community, as as mentioned before, the community and those who've been the victims or face the brunt of the armed conflict without necessarily being engaged and the actions of those who've engaged in um, the conflict. And so these sorts of ways of having social dialogue together also set up some of the foundations for ongoing dialogue and integration and and as Kiwaya says the um the need for the social connection within families and communities for those who are being reintegrated and i think um sort of uh reinforcing the stigma that um sophie described is the fact that um we have more than a dozen countries um who uh, of the 131 countries that we report on who imprison children uh, for their association with armed groups, which really just it reinforces this sense of social exclusion. Um, so it's really uh, crucial to sort of strengthen the capacity of local community structures that support recently demobilized children with non-punitive measures. And yeah. these programs should be reinforced with um, strong legal and enforcement levels at the national and community level. Sophie, I really appreciated your um, the discussion around reprioritization of, of support. And, you know, we, we've had this very physical sort of uh, view of what immediate support needs to look like. It's, you know, shelter, it's, it's wash, it's, um, it's food, it's clothing. And we have thought about a lot of the other aspects of reintegration, the sort of things that would be nice, but not necessarily worth prioritizing. And I think there's work increasingly on how, for instance, you know, family acceptance is the key, not only to broader social acceptance in the community, but also economic reintegration. So as you say, and I think as you know, the young people have pulled, you know, pointed out from their own experience, if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to, to build a business or build another um, economic livelihood opportunity. So to do that, though, I think the thing that we haven't quite gotten yet um, is that we need to do more, I think, to prepare families to receive young people home. And, you know, some of that is around, you know, perceptions of the conflict and and their involvement but part of it is is like the social norms 
of a family that hasn't lived together in the same way and young people who've changed because they've been gone for, for those cases where they have actually left, not, not been together. Um, and I think that's really important for sensitizing the return of young people. Uh, but, and we need to do that in communities more broadly, I think, but I think also for young people, we, we don't do enough to sensitize them back into the social norms of their community. So I, I was really struck when Android talked about, you know, we see them in the community and we laugh at them, we make fun of them. It's partly because people do not fit in. It's not just the stigma of having been associated with a group that we don't like or we're afraid of, but also that you know they're they're just off. Um, and I know of some work that was done in Liberia, which took young people and like ha it helped them to even walk into a bank and not get kicked out right away. You know, how do you dress? How do you hold yourself? How do you address someone? How do you ask for a loan? And they would workshop through these experiences and figure out who was having success and who wasn't. And so some of this is just the basic. Social norms that people have missed out on because they haven't been part of the broader community for a while in the same way. Thank you, Siobhan. I think what you started talking about very much links back to what the last young man said, and he was talking about help to forget um, the atrocities that they lived through or forced to commit while while in the bush and. And speaking about mental health and psychosocial support, which clearly is an important part of uh, organizations working to reintegrate or support the reintegration of, of young people affected by armed conflict. Do you see within reintegration work specifically, how do you see this aspect of support developing? And is there something different that uh, we should be doing? I'm really pleased you raised that actually, because that's that's something at Warchild we've done quite a lot of thinking on. And I think there's a real, you know, there's a lot more focus now on MHPSS in in, in for children affected by armed conflict. And there's definitely efforts to include it in all manner of programming, but and we need to think about quality and consistency. But the, one of the main things that that comes out of this is is whether or not actually we do need to focus on mental health and whether there is a need really to to focus on that very very small number and the sharp end of what is a, you know a mental health um illness or condition versus actually what um could be um addressed through better psychosocial programming because for the vast majority of cases um the thing that would really help is not having lots and lots of psychiatrists and, and mental health wards or anything like that. It would just be uh, a better possibility to work through some of that um, psychological, emotional um, feeling and experience that these children and young people have. And I think it's really important to differentiate between these, you know, and again, this speaks back to something that's come up a lot in these discussions, contextualization, but a lot of these um, ideas and thinking around mental health come from Western perspectives, um, you know, which which aren't necessarily very easily applicable in some of the places and the countries that and the communities that we're talking about. Um, so some of the stuff that we're really interested in is working with communities and young people to understand what kind of um, PSS activities would really help, what they feel would really help, and developing these these activities, these components with them in partnership. Um, rather than trying to apply um, pre-made um, methods um, from other places and expecting them to just work. Um, so I think that's that's a really 
um, a really interesting um, point and something I'd be keen to hear other panelists thinking on. I think that's so important, Sophie. We we've been doing survey work on psychological well-being and and looking for um, different assessment tools that have been used, and you and you really run into this challenge of tools that are created with a very Western context in mind and their applicability. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of laughing because we've had this recently been going back and forth on one of these sort of psychological functioning scales. And one of the questions is about, you know, is it hard, have you had a hard time getting out of bed and getting dressed recently? And, you know, everyone in West Africa where we're doing this was like, what, you know, what, what does this even mean? You know, it, it did not resonate at all. So you have to be so careful. And I think that's such a good point about the Western origins of these things. I also think a rather Western assumption around some of these interventions too is about sort of the, the appropriateness of timing. And increasingly the UN and international actors and NGOs, they're working in active conflict zones. And here we are trying to address people's PTSD symptoms. And I think what we need to recognize is at times, you know, those, the way the mind responds to this kind of trauma and conflict exposure is, is sometimes about protecting. It, it, is a, it is a survival mechanism. And when you're still in the midst of a conflict, it may not be the appropriate time to get someone to figure out what avoidance is and how to stop engaging in it, right? Because that may be that, that protective function that's helping keeping them going. I think it also just bears repeating that some aspects of psychosocial support should be targeted to girls who do face the additional stigma of being associated with surviving sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and some of these girls face a higher risk of recidivism or re-recruitment because of this stigma. Thanks, Jennifer. And I think both what you and Siobhan and, and what Sophie and Simon said, it shows the interconnectedness of these two points, right? They're so heavily connected, the community acceptance and the psychosocial well-being of the child. So the link between community acceptance, being accepted, and then being able to sort of heal and move on it is just so, um, so important. Anything else you'd like to add, having listened to these young people today? I'm really interested in what people said. I think the other thing about this increased focus on, you know, mental health is that it does risk presenting populations or groups of people as weak in another way. Because often the reactions that people are having are normal to in normal what are not normal circumstances. And it's not necessarily a mental health condition. It's just that people are going to be trying um, experiencing things that 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 will cause any person to have often a very, you know, an adverse reaction that will play out in lots of different ways. I think the support and inclusion, as you say, is is key. And I think this is what we've been repeating throughout this, that support needs to be there on both sides. Inclusion of both sides needs to be there. The transparency and, and ability for these groups to be able to talk needs to be there and, and, uh, and opportunities to do so. Um, it's just how does that happen in practice, especially when we're dealing with a, an area which is quite often underfunded and and is not in easy places to work to begin with and so uh, makes it even harder to to reach out and, and to uh, support these groups with work that's needed. I just wanted to say that um, in reading and hearing 
the excerpts from the young people who have experienced conflict, um, I am struck by how important it is to be listening to them and when having these conversations and to be including them in these conversations. And I just want to thank War Child for their work in the space. It is unusual. It is exemplary. And it definitely gives us all a direction that we should be moving in that kind of participatory approach. So thanks so much. And, and please, please keep it up. I, f- I find it, it benefits research, it benefits policy discussions, and it certainly benefits the design and implementation of programming in the space. Thank you very much, Sophie, Jennifer, Simon, Siobhan, for joining me here today, for listening to the young people from the Voice More group in Masisi, and for sort of starting to dwell a bit more in detail into how we ensure participation of of young people in in both peace building and reintegration. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast on conflict-affected young people's participation in peace building and reintegration. If you'd like to hear more about Warchild's work, please visit warchild.org.uk. And if you would like to find out more about our reintegration programming or would like to discuss issues raised in this podcast, you can contact me at Sandra O at warchild.org.uk. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.